The gold rush of the 21st century is turning out to be a lot less glamorous but rather more efficient than its predecessors. Its careful modus operandi is illustrated by this rather technical-sounding statement to the stock exchange in January by the mining company Heritage Gold. Heritage Gold has successfully raised $3.6 million in a fully subscribed placement and rights issue. The placement was successfully completed with strong market support. Behind those anodyne words lie glittering possibilities. The chance that $3.6 million could become $36 million or $72 million, thanks to mankind's millennia-old drive to find, buy and keep gold. It's an extreme long shot. Gold prospecting very often comes to nothing. But if it works, the returns will tower above the original payment. To get a chance at that, investors are giving Heritage Gold and other companies some of their money. North of Waihee, a helicopter hired by Heritage Gold and paid for by those investors has spent many days flying just 50 feet or 15 metres above the ground. It uses special aerial photography to try to work out what's underground. Paul Vidanovich is the geologist in charge of this mission. He says an aerial magnetic camera mounted on the helicopter gives a clue as to what sort of minerals lie below the surface of the earth. Well, currently we're flying an aeromagnetic survey. We've got a sensor mounted on a helicopter and it's flying a grid pattern across the area we have under permit and uh, it's collecting or measuring the magnetic field along those lines. That field is effectively altered by the rocks locally. If some of those rocks have got more magnetic iron oxide, we'll get greater intensity. If we are flying over clays or sediments where the magnetic content is lower, we get a much weaker response. Using aerial photography to produce a magnetic map of the Earth's crust is not cheap, nor is analysing the results, nor is drilling into the Earth for further investigation. And all that pales into insignificance compared with the cost of actually digging and operating a gold mine. But Heritage Gold's managing director, Trent Lash, says people are willing to take big risks with small parts of their investment portfolios in the hope of getting a windfall. We're not a company that the average investor would invest in for a 30 to 50% return. If you check with most of our uh, major investors, they're looking at 10 to 20 times their money. If. If we hit something. That if is less problematic now than it was. The price of gold has skyrocketed, reducing the risk threshold for would-be gold prospectors. Almost all experts think the price of gold will stay high, in part because of big economic growth in cultures like jewellery-hungry India. Norman Stacey, one-time geologist, present-time financial advisor, says that's not just because 70% of gold is used for jewellery, but because it should be part of any prudent investor's portfolio. We're certainly quite strident that it has a place in a diversified portfolio. In our model balance strategy currently, we're advocating about 18% in gold, and that's half in gold bullion and probably half in gold producers' shares. That's because gold is a refuge for investors at a time when the usual mainstay, the US dollar, is being battered by a credit crisis and by international political instability. 
And with people buying more gold to create a kind of financial outer perimeter, demand has risen, and consequently, price. That in turn encourages the search for gold in any country where it exists in quantity, and that includes New Zealand. But why is there gold here to search for? What factors have made a remote, narrow country like New Zealand so rich in precious yellow metal? Richard Sibson is Professor of Geology at Otago University and says it's because New Zealand is the shaky isles. Gold tends to accumulate in useful lumps in countries which are or were geologically unstable. Just about all rocks have a very few parts per billion gold content. To understand mineable deposits and how they come about, you have to understand how we can move atoms of gold and get them concentrated in a, a small restricted volume. We believe that it is done by the movement of hot water at temperatures of around 250, 350 Celsius. The gold then becomes precipitated when there are physical changes in the faults and fractures, either from the mixing with other cold water sources or from the boiling when they're close to the surface, as in the Taupo zone, or um, sometimes by the decompression of the fluid pressure every time a fault ruptures. In other words, gold, which is just about everywhere, is concentrated into usable chunks by events such as earthquakes or geysers, and that's what happened in New Zealand. Some of that concentrated gold was eroded over the centuries by rain and ice, and the nuggets washed downstream. It was those that produced the gold rushes of the 1860s and 70s. Sid Knight was a man whose father worked the Otago fields in the 1860s. Interviewed as an old man in the 1940s, along with a friend, he gave a clue as to what it was like. There were about 1,500 gold diggers in the ranges. The earth to about nine feet deep was all shifted by shovel. It was all shifted by handwork and very heavy work too, was continual lifting. Ten hours a day in those days, but they, had, they used to have a time off for smoking. Many accidents happened, of course, in the sluicing claims, fall to clay coming down and broken legs, and uh, several miners were killed with fall to clay at different times. Like Sid Knight, the children and grandchildren of the gold diggers have long since passed away, but their memory lives on as a vital part of New Zealand's cultural heritage. I'm weary of Otago, I'm weary of the snow If I should strike it rich away, I will go With the departure of the gold diggers overseas went the glamour of gold and an organised industrial application took their place. Dredging and hard rock mining replaced the sometimes lucky but often doomed and dreamy gold diggers. It never matched their total output, but the gold it did produce, about three-quarters of the peak gold rush years, was one with far fewer people and was far more reliable. Gold geologist and consultant Richard Barker. The level of gold output in New Zealand increased with the gold rushes of the 1860s up to nearly 800,000 ounces a year. It tapered off when the, the easy gold had been extracted. Then the gold dredges got going and produced another peak and that came to an end with the First World War and the loss of manpower and so on and gold production after that progressively declined through until the 1980s when the current wave of activity really started. It got back up to a level of three or 400,000 ounces a year 
and it's been at that level ever since, about half the level of the, the peak in the late 19th century. What Richard Barker is referring to there is the third phase of gold mining in New Zealand. It kicked off in the late 1980s, courtesy of gold prospecting five to ten years earlier. That in turn was sparked by events overseas. A revolution in Iran dried up oil supplies, brought turmoil to Western economies and caused people once again to seek gold as a defensive investment. Richard Barker says that was made possible by a freed-up world gold market. For a long time, uh, currencies were backed by gold, and the gold price was effectively fixed at 35 US dollars an ounce for a long period, and that caused the gold mining industry to progressively wind down. I mean, it couldn't survive at a constant price. Those controls were lifted, and then with the outbreak of inflation and uh, oil crises and other things in the late 1970s, the price of gold reached an all-time high of about $800 an ounce. The giant Martha mine in Waihee, though built on the site of an earlier mine, is a legacy of those trends 25 years ago. Heightened gold exploration in the wake of the Iranian crisis and the consequent spike in the price of gold. Claude Anaru is a mine surveyor at Newmont Gold, the international company that runs the Waihee mine. We're mining uh, waste rock at the moment. There's no gold contained in this. There's gold underneath it. And we're taking it out... At in two and a half metre what we call flitches or levels. The, the machine that's doing the digging is a 190 tonne excavator, one of the larger types. Uh, the trucks have got about 90 tonne of rock on them and we hope to excavate, take about 9,000 cubic metres of, of rock from this particular area today. The Marfa mine in the middle of Waihee is a vast 200 metre deep pit, several hundred metres across, though the main seam of gold-laden quartz that it quarries is just a few metres wide. It produces 130,000 ounces of gold a year. That's the equivalent of 3.6 tonnes. The mine's life expectancy has been extended to 2011 and could stretch to 2015 if extensions to the east and the west of the mine work out. Malcolm Lane is a senior executive at the company. This is into the third century of mining here in Waihee. We're hopeful that it continues and that's why Newmont is investing you know, nine million dollars a year in exploration to, to find the next, the next mine. There, there is a limited life um, in the open pit here in Martha. We're about 200, 220 metres deep here but the old mine actually went down 600 metres. So the veins are known to go significantly deeper than we're able to mine from the open. We're looking below the pit floor to see if there's an opportunity to develop an underground mine in the old Martha workings based on the remnant ore that's left behind by the old workers. Of course safety's going to be an issue there whether or not that can work or proceed. What we're doing obviously is regionally looking around to see if we can find other deposits that we can bring on stream before we close mining here and uh, keep our experienced workforce going. We're currently employing uh, between 300 and 350 people. According to Crown Minerals, a branch of the Ministry of Economic Development, Martha is New Zealand's second biggest mine. Bigger again is McRae's north of Dunedin. Teams of workers toil 24 hours a day, every day of the year, and end up with a mine 100 metres deeper than Martha, producing around 400 kilograms more gold each year. Ben Baxter is the company geologist. The mining process starts with drilling, 
we set out a pattern across the pit floor and then a drill will go down and drill a seven and a half metre hole. Three samples at two and a half metre intervals are taken and then the hole is filled with explosives and blown up. Uh, those samples are sent to the lab to be assayed for gold. We can then build up a map of the pit floor based on zones of ore and waste. The diggers then come and dig them out and they will either go to the waste dump or to the mill where it is uh, the gold's extracted. Ben Baxter raises another point which shows just how rich New Zealand is in gold and why gold miners keep on coming back. As with the Martha mine, he says, McRae's life expectancy just keeps on getting longer because more gold keeps on getting found. When the mine first opened in 1990, I believe it had about a six-year life of mine. Uh, that was about 18 years ago now, so as long as we keep discovering ore, the life of the mine extends. At the moment, the life of mine plan takes us through to 2013. McRae's owner is the international company Oceana Gold. It's predicting 200,000 ounces of gold per annum for the next six years from McRae's and from an underground extension at the same site. That's 5.6 tonnes of gold. Oceana's second big mine at Reefton is forecast to produce 65,000 ounces a year, which is 1.8 tonnes. This and other smaller mines produce total earnings for New Zealand of $250 million for the most recent figures. That was a 5% increase on the previous year. And that's just the start, because the price of gold on world markets has risen by 50% in the past 12 months. Updated earnings figures for New Zealand are bound to reflect that. All that gives the government millions of dollars a year in royalties and income and company tax. Mine workers are often highly paid to deter them from defecting to still better paid positions in the mining business in Australia. So, with good money to earn and lots of gold to earn it from, why isn't more being dug out? This is why. A lot of people will not be happy with it, the ones that are affected. Some people have got quite a grudge against it. It's the new new extension that worries us, and, and I'm and more is involved in it. I'm quite a fair way away. I'm on Union Street, and my house, it does, it shakes badly. People who don't want their neighbourhood affected by industrial developments generally seem to dislike even more the idea of a mine in their midst because of noise, dust and reverberation from underground blasting. I can hear rowdy noise all the t- most of the time. Early in the mornings and some late at nights, not all nights, but rowdy, quite rowdy. They're not all the time. It's a nuisance, really. But in the case of Waihi, the town's economy was built on gold, and everyone knows it, so it's a bit late to complain now. Moreover, the vast Martha pit was hardly an unknown factor to new arrivals. But its lengthening life expectancy is disappointing some residents who were expecting the process of turning a disused gold mine into a recreational lake in the heart of town to have begun by now, not to be another decade away. When applications are heard to extend the mine, strong arguments both for and against are expected to be heard. The latest opposition to mining, though, is mild compared with earlier waves of dissent in the 1980s. At that time, protesters occupied drilling rigs and chained themselves to trees to keep mining companies out of the Coromandel. This is a Radio New Zealand report from March 1989. 
Work at the site has been disrupted a number of times, with groups of protesters occupying the drilling rig, and the latest protests turned sour during the weekend. Five people were arrested after complaints that company equipment was vandalised during the rig occupation on Saturday, and police say further arrests are expected. Actions today. like this made a big impact, and no mining Coromandel became a rallying cry. There are signs, though, that some of the heat might have gone out of the anti-mining campaign. Thames Coromandel District Council tried 10 years ago to prohibit gold mining on the entire Coromandel Peninsula, with the exception of Maori-owned land. That policy was subject to 54 appeals. It went to the Environment Court, to the High Court, to the Court of Appeal, then back to the Environment Court, where it still isn't finished. The current mayor, Philippa Barabal, says the council is back to where it started a decade ago, still with no plan in place. Meanwhile, the council is backtracking from the absolutist ban of the past, while still preserving some regions from mining projects. We cannot accept that the entire peninsula is iconic. I mean, I think it is, but in planning sense it's not. I mean, the Kaupu Industrial Estate is not the same as a valley in Whangapawa. By bringing in the landscape variation, we can actually say, look, these areas are iconic and we're going to prohibit uh, any sort of alteration to these landscapes. And that will give us a far more robust way of actually preventing mining, quarrying and any other activity that, that is not in keeping with those areas. But in the meantime, you also have to say, well, whilst you can't do it here, here, let's look at other places in the peninsula where it may be appropriate to do uh, industrial activities. Philippa Barabore says her district needs economic development. Many existing jobs are in the tourism business and are not always well paid, far less so than in mining. We have got, I think, one of the lowest average income per person here on this district, about 14,700, I think, in, the, in one of the earlier censuses. And this is a really major issue for this peninsula. We're not able to keep our young people. We have difficulty attracting doctors. It's difficult to get enough volunteers for our fire brigades and ambulances. School roles kind of just sort of struggle along. We really need people. Uh, and with more and more people coming here to retire, they demand more and more services. And we just don't have that 20 to 40 year old age bracket here to support them so we're really keen to I guess get our eggs out of the tourism basket and maybe try and divvy them up and get some other forms of economic activity here. Professor Simpson is rather sceptical of anti-mining protesters but says there are real problems for the environment caused by digging mines. Though the environmental standards of mines have improved, the scale of their operations tends to be vast and often leaves a permanent mark. You might also ask, why do people mine gold? It's a complete mystery to me. It's a rather useless metal, apart from uh, prettifying some people. And quite a lot goes into rather sophisticated electronics as well, because it has very useful electrical properties. But the whole business of gold mining is a little uh, peculiar, and it can cause enormous problems for the environment. Though I have to say that McRae's mine is one of the tidiest mines globally that I've seen. What sort of problems are you talking about, generally? The nature of gold mining has changed. In the Coromandel days, you would be mining narrow veins of quartz, and they might carry about 10 ounces of gold per tonne. And now we're mining down to a fraction of a gram per tonne. And that means that there is an enormous volume of waste rock produced. New Zealand mines often produce around three grams per tonne, still low but higher than Professor Simpson's average. The professor adds another comment that implies anti-mining protesters are often hypocritical. 
Rich Weston, as he says, are hooked on the benefits of mining whether they realise it or not. Their need for metals for everyday products is so great that they work their way through the equivalent of 22 tonnes of rock per year per person. That produces roads, it produces concrete, it produces washing machines, pots and pans, motor cars, aeroplanes, you name it. You drive around and you'll see people in Auckland, for example, driving very large glossy cars with Coromandel no mining stickers on the back. I sort of think, you know, that car has a ton or so of steel and chrome and nickel and copper and many other metals, all of which have come out of holes in the ground. And we tend to forget that our lifestyle is totally supported by mining. Although the price of gold has gone sky high, that's not an issue for big established mines like McRae's or Martha. The scale of their investment is gigantic, so they have to be in business for the long haul, whether the price of gold goes up or down. For gold prospecting companies, though, the price of the metal does matter. As mentioned, Auckland's Heritage Gold and its investors are especially interested in gold at around $1,000 an ounce. So is its Wellington rival Glass Earth, which is searching for gold in geothermal regions between Taupo and Rotorua, as well as near Waihee. Simon Henderson is the company's chief operating officer. We're looking in a, an area where we know there's active geothermal activity and we know that the geothermal activity has been active for at least 3 million years and there's every chance that there are fossil or cold geothermal systems there that have economic quantities of gold. We are drilling on a couple of projects, so we're uh, applying the truth machine, if you like. We are actively uh, testing these potentially fossil geothermal systems, both with a three-dimensional resistivity, which looks down 650 metres down into the deep bowels of these systems underneath the volcanic ash. And from targets within the resistivity, we then drill test those features with diamond drilling. Just last week, Glass Earth told the nation of an exciting discovery in another region, Otago. It recently completed a $4 million aerial survey of 13,000 square kilometres of central Otago, to which the regional council contributed $1 million. In a statement, Glass Earth said the survey highlighted zones similar to the gold-producing structures in the giant McRae's mine. Simon Henderson says it's nice to move beyond the upper North Island. Very excited by what's happening in Otago. We're currently uh, cashed up and uh, excited by our exploration activities. Glass Earth says it's begun a ground exploration of Otago and hopes to start exploratory drilling before winter. Back at Heritage Gold, Trent Lash is equally confident about the Coromandel region based on its long-term history. I think it's quite prospective. It's one of the uh, richest gold mining areas in the world. It's hosted the Martha Open Pit. Uh, we have the historic Talisman mine just 12 kilometres away to the west. That is the second largest producing gold mine in New Zealand. Between um, Karangahaki, Talisman, the Martha Open Pit, the Golden Cross mines, that area has produced over 8 million ounces of gold and 56 million ounces of silver in its time. Norman Stacey, the one-time geologist, now investment analyst, says the historic level of production is likely to rise even higher due to the high price of gold. In New Zealand dollar terms, it's gone from about $600 an ounce back in 2005 to 1200 currently, and profit, of course, is at the margin. So if you're making $100 an ounce back when it was 600 profit has gone up sevenfold. 
the potential profitability, obviously, when you're prospecting. This is matched by the experience overseas. It is a, a global phenomenon. The Toronto Venture Exchange and the London Alternative Exchange, between the pair of them, raised $20 billion US dollars for uh, mineral exploration last year. That, that's a huge upturn on what it was. There's a um, massive upturn in exploration worldwide. Retired geologists are coming out of the woodwork most everywhere. Norman Stacey says comparable figures apply in New Zealand. For all minerals, he says, the exploration budget has risen fivefold compared with half a decade ago. But Mr Stacey believes that government regulations are complicated and expensive, so New Zealand produces far less gold than it might. Another expert, Richard Barker, points out that international mining companies rate New Zealand 35th out of 64 countries and states in terms of investment attractiveness. At the top are places like Manitoba in Canada and South Australia. At the bottom, Venezuela and Zimbabwe. He says an improved government sector could push New Zealand into the top few. Norman Stacey makes a similar point. New Zealand is geologically very well endowed and arguably should have a much higher level of gold production and gold exploration. But the, the regulatory system here is very bureaucratic and very expensive. There's essentially three legs to it. You need to get a government permit and then you have to get surface holders consent which may or may not be forthcoming and then you start on the uh, Resource Management Act requirements and perhaps Department of Conservation or iwi approval to any work program. That's um, all, all expensive and delaying and it's, it's not especially competitive compared to other regimes but may be geologically less promising. But certainly Australia and Chile have uh, more exploration-friendly regimes. On the other hand, there are two large, two medium and many small mines in New Zealand which are able to operate without having been blocked by red tape. The Martha mine has been able to function in the heart of Waihee with approval from local government thanks to agreed compromises such as smaller-than-usual explosive charges in their blasting operations. And Richard Barker says the company's neighbouring Favona mine was able to start up last year without difficulty. It went through the resource consent processes they all do. But in the case of Favona, the, the affected people in the neighbourhood signed off on it and so there was no need for a consent hearing. It was, the, the consent was, was granted without any, any need for a hearing. When you think what it was like 20 years ago, the prospect that a gold mine at Waihee would, would go through the non-notified uh, application would have been inconceivable, I think. The government has a reputation in the industry of shuffling and looking awkward whenever mining is mentioned, but its mood tends to improve when it cashes the cheque for royalties and tax. If the current prospecting produces results, that cheque could get bigger.